the title of this morning's talk, it's something that's kind of been sitting with me over the past couple of months over summer um, because of a couple of books that I've been reading, uh, is uh, Fake News. The title of this talk is Fake News, Lies We Believe About God. And um, give you a wee quick sort of uh, definition of what fake news is from Wikipedia. Wikipedia says, fake news is a type of yellow journalism or propaganda that consists of deliberate misinformation or hoaxes spread via traditional print and broadcast news media or online social media. The relevance of fake news has increased in post-truth politics. For media outlets, the ability to attract viewers to their websites is necessary to generate online advertising revenue. Fake news is disinformation that goes viral. You know, you've all heard of fake news, I'm sure. I did a Google search, Google News search on fake news during the week, and it came up with half a billion hits, which apparently is a hundred times more than the same search would have thrown up just one year ago. So fake news is exponentially rising and being propagated. And, uh, you know, the Yanks probably corner the market on this. We've got a great picture of... Our friend Donald behind me there. So why don't we let the Yanks give us a couple of examples about fake news that has been put out there um, into the world in the past couple of years? You know, who remembers the story about Melania Trump's body double? Anybody pick up on that one? I remember it. What about Pizzagate? Did anybody hear of Pizzagate? Maybe not. Pizzagate was this conspiracy theory that kind of sprouted up and it grew to crazy proportions online. It started with a rumor that there were sex slaves being held under a Washington pizza parlor. And this was all kind of in the run-up to the, to the election, actually. And uh, it ended a couple of days before Hillary Clinton's speech when a man entered into this pizza parlor that had been sex slaves, apparently, were living under and, uh, with a rifle. And he was about to shoot someone. But thankfully, nobody got hurt. But this was kind of fake news gone mad. And then you might remember Sean Spicer. Anybody remember poor old Sean? He was the, the ex-press secretary to the White House. And uh, Sean had the job of convincing the world's media <laughs> that uh, Trump's crowds were, <laughs> I quote, the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. You know, after a comparison of Obama's 2009 inauguration, the crowd size of Trump's one was like a third the size of what Trump's was. So all fake news. And, uh, you know, fake news, it might be disinformation that's been spread from the alt-right designed to heighten tensions and civil unrest that might come from Russia media outlets as they try and spin uh, the, the media reports from the West about what they have been up to and their actions in the world. But mostly we know it from Trump. He's kind of popularized this notion of fake news as he tries to manipulate reality and use it to denigrate any negative opinion about his actions or his policy. Whatever the source, we're living in a time of fake news. I don't want to kind of flog this to death, but you get the point. Fake news is everywhere. In today's culture, information is important currency for us, and for good reason. You know, what you think matters, and for us as the church in the West in the 21st century, it can be a confusing time, it can be a challenging time, 
And it can be a disorienting experience to be confronted with all kinds of disinformation. But this morning, I want to focus on what it might mean for us as a community of Jesus followers to consider what kind of fake news, what kind of disinformation, what kind of lies we've maybe been led to believe about God. Um, You see, there's a lot of disinformation about the nature and character of God that I humbly suggest this morning that we've collected, we've lived under, we may have been taught, and that's been propagated over the years amongst Christians. And we can access all these podcasts and teaching from a thousand and one different pastors and churches as it takes our fancy. We've become cyber disciples, many of us. We've also picked up much of what we understand about God and faith from those around us as we grew up and perhaps as we were embedded in the life of a local church as we grew up or as we looked at scripture for ourselves, we gathered some untruths along the way. Maybe this is especially true for us For those of us who grew up in the religiously charged atmosphere of Northern Ireland, we picked up a particular brand of folk religion that's so present here. So I want to suggest that along the way, we've collected some rubbish. I've got my little bin here beside me. We're going to consign some lies about God into this bin along the way. This is kind of, I would have loved a lever like room 101, you know, this being 101, you know. Can, can this be yeah, room 101 for, for the day? So I'm aware this morning that there's going to be some things that I might touch on this morning that um, might be holy ground for some of you. And so I want to affirm from the outset that there is much mystery about the nature and character of God and our only response should be like an open-handed Humility, and I hope that's how I approach it this morning. I'm also not wanting to fire a shot across the bow at any other alternative views of the nature of God. But what I do want this morning to be is a helpful tool for us, perhaps to stimulate our thinking, or maybe more hopefully even bring some relief and clarity to us. The things that I'm going to talk about are a couple of things that I've learned along the way of my own journey with Jesus that have been revolutionary in my understanding of him and in turn have helped revolutionize my posture towards him and my relationship with him. So I'm going to start this morning by setting up where we're going today. I believe there is no more crucial thing in the life of a follower of Jesus than their understanding of the character of God. This is ground zero. This is base camp for us. This is the foundation upon which everything else comes. Imagine that our understanding, our conception of God's character is like a compass that will help orientate us as we journey the road of discipleship with Jesus. If that compass is broken, or even if it is even ever so slightly off by a degree or two, the consequences as we journey further down that road will be that we can be taken miles off course and it could perhaps even be disastrous for us. So as we begin this journey of cleansing our palate of false or unhelpful conceptions of God, we might say that there is a kind of atheism that is actually helpful to us as we journey towards a truer conception of God. There is an atheism that turns away 
from our decidedly unchristlike idols that we've constructed in our hearts and in our minds that we worship in our communities and that we sometimes even sing about in songs? What if we allowed this purging fire of that overused word deconstruction to fall on our false conceptions of God until they've burned up everything except that which is the firm foundation of Christ? This kind of turning away from our God's small g should allow us to fall into the arms of Christ who is truth himself. Turning away from these false pictures of God, from the fake news of what we may hold God to be like is actually a kind of repentance. That is, it is a turning away from a false image of God and towards a true one in Christ. This turning away from something that is untrue and towards Christ is actually the essence of repentance. So to help us this morning, I want to set out a non-negotiable about God's character that will help us as we unpack things as we go on. God is love plus nothing. Maybe you've encountered this amongst Christians. When people say God is love, you kind of wait for the next word. Very often, anybody know what the next word is? God is love, but... He is also holy. God is love, but he is also just. God is love, but he is also righteous. I want to say no. God is love, period. God is love as his very essence, but yes, God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. But any kind of righteousness, holiness, or justice that is not love is not God. God's nature is love. His holiness, his righteousness, his justice, even his wrath are all facets of his love. But you might well be saying, that's all very well, saying God is love. But what does that mean? What, what, do, we, what do we actually mean? What do we mean by love? What do we mean by God is love. So <clears throat> I want to use the immortal words of the 1984 power ballad by Foreigner. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. So, I should have sung it, but yeah. Allow me, allow me to show you. Rather, let's let the apostle of love show us the way. And no, not talking about David Wiley, not talking about Barry White, I'm talking about St. John the Apostle. So here's a couple of scriptures, and I'm using um, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright's uh, New Testament for Everyone translation this morning, just to spice it up a wee bit. So he says this, this is First John 3.16, this is how we know, not, how we know love. He laid down his life for us. And we too ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then the next chapter on, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God and all who are fathered by God and know God. 
The one who does not love has not known God because God is love. This is how God's love has appeared among us. God sent his only son into the world that we should live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. Beloved, if that's how God loved us, we ought to know, we ought to love one another in the same way. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is completed in us. That is how we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us a portion of his spirit. And we have seen and bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be the world's Savior. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is God's Son, God abides in them, and they abide in God. And we have known and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. Those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. So John The apostle says this, this is how we know love. Speaking of Jesus, he laid down his life for us. And he says, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. So the revelation for us here is that God's love is a radically cruciform love. It is cross-shaped most of the time our attempts to define love fall woefully short of this definition. So we can say that God's essence as love is self-giving. He gave himself. It is other-centered because it is for us and the whole world. It is radically forgiving in the cross of Christ. And it is co-suffering because he entered into our suffering. We might even say that Anything that we have called love that looks different to that isn't love at all. But let's, let's, add to, let's add to this developing picture. We also know that God is Trinity. He is relationship itself. I love how William Paul Young, who is the author of The Shack, puts it. He says this, this one God is a relationship of three persons who have been forever in the great dance of face to face to face. This divine dance is full of life and light and music and laughter and joy and submission and goodness. Theirs is the mutual interpenetration of one with the other without any diminishment or absorption of person. This is the grand celebration of relationship in which all of creation is created. This is the God who is love. A God who cannot be anything that is not love. To which I say, amen. Isn't it good news to know that God is a God who is in, who is in relationship and knows how to be with? The God who is love, who is relationship itself, poured God's self out in the person of Jesus. Paul the Apostle says this, speaking of Jesus, who, though in God's form, did not regard his equality with God as something to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave, 
being born in the likeness of humans and then having human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death, yes, even death, the death of the cross. I want to introduce you this morning. You may already know this word, but Paul says Christ emptied himself and took up the status of a servant as a human being. This Greek word used to describe this emptying is kenosis. It should be on the screen, kenosis. It doesn't mean, as is sometimes taught, that Christ gave up his divine attributes in the person of Jesus. No, we learn elsewhere that the fullness of God dwelled bodily in Jesus. But it does reveal his self-giving, self-emptying nature. God in Christ emptied himself, poured himself out into the world. And in doing so, he revealed to us the very nature of God. God's love is self-giving. It is other-centered. It is co-suffering love. This word, kenosis, describes this love. His love is kenotic in nature. God is kenotic love. So that has been my little setup, my non-negotiable about the character of God for what comes next. We're going to look at some fake news now, some lies we may be believing about God. And then we're going to use this cruciform lens They allow us to bring into focus what God's like. So lie number one, God is like. First up for my little trash can, my little room 101, or some unchristlike images of God, one or more of which may resonate with you. These are only three uh, images of God. There's plenty more, but these are three that I thought might be helpful this morning. Number one, God the doting grandfather. God the doting grandfather begins with a fantasy of a God who is syrupy and nice and rather naive. Grace in this model imagines that God spoils his grandkids with whatever they want while turning a blind eye to their misbehavior. The promises of God may have been emphasized to you if this is the image of God that you've created. There are scriptures that taken in isolation allow us to create a whatever you want fairy, ta- fairy tale kind of God. You can know if you're worshiping this idol, if when tragedy strikes or when a person or a family member or the church that you love begins to unravel or the person gets sick or dies and God seems not to answer you. Maybe a friend goes through a horrendous ordeal. Maybe you yourself have done your worst and you've harmed others and you'd rather die than face it until the God who hears doesn't answer and the God who saves doesn't rescue until you realize that God in fact allows absolutely anything to happen. God seems to allow any kind of evil and depth of suffering to come. And so when this suffering comes to us and in our defiance or even just in our our hurt, we turn our back on God and we we stop praying We put up the walls. We've seen this God for who he is and we reject him. We've put the penny in the machine. We pressed the button and nothing came out. So how should we react when things don't pan out? When we've prayed 
and things don't happen as we wish they would? Should we turn our backs and shun God? Should we stop praying? Eugene Peterson, the wise old sage, says this. He says, be disappointed. Just be disappointed. Don't place demands on God. Don't enslave him to your agenda. Risk disappointment. It's okay, but don't let it wreck you. Then he says this, pray for heaven to touch earth and then grieve because heaven is not earth. I think that's real wisdom for us. You know, if that resonates with you, perhaps your image of God has been something like a doting grandfather. You need to repent of that. This one may be tough for some of you. This is, this is God, the, the absent dad. You know, I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know the pain of uh, to have an absent parent. I don't claim to know what that's like firsthand. But <clears throat> maybe, maybe your conception of God uh, maybe you imagine a God as the God who abandoned me. God the dad who wasn't there when I needed him. God the dad who walked out the door one day and never came back. God, <clears throat> the dad I needed to listen and reply, but never visited, never answered my calls. God, the dad I needed to show me how to grow up. God, the dad I needed to be proud of me <clears throat> when I succeeded and supportive when I failed. Maybe all you feel like you know is God as absence. You know, I'm really thankful for this season of church history where it seems that we have recovered the wonder of knowing the Father heart of God. There is an epidemic in the world today of fatherlessness. Many of you I struggle to know the love of God as a loving parent. <clears throat> and I gladly add the mother heart of God to the father heart of God for those who need to engage God in that way. I want to say in particular that I believe that God the Father would want to reveal his heart to you if that's you today. And if you would like someone to pray with you about that, then that will be available at the end of today. Then my favorite, this is the one that I struggle with, God, the punitive judge. God, the angry judge. This is the God that I knew I grew up with. And I had the biggest job on learning when I came to Christ. I'm so thankful today for the movement of God's Spirit, as I said, that's highlighted the Father's heart. I'm so thankful that God is the prodigal God. 
who while we were a long way off, he picked up his robes and he ran to meet us as we returned to him. I'm so thankful that he doesn't wait to even hear our apology. He puts a ring in our finger, clothes us, and invites us into the party. I'm so thankful for that today. God, the punitive judge, God, the angry judge, might be the idol that you're worshiping this morning. If you grew up in a church atmosphere, there was a lot of talk about the condemnation of sin, of judgment, and of the wrath of God. Did you grow up thinking that you had to examine every sin before you took bread and wine at Eucharist? Was there a sharp definition of who was in and who was out? Were you, <laughs> were you afraid of being left behind? <laughs> Me and my brother had a conversation just last week. Our two biggest fears as kids growing up, number one, that my dad was going to become a, mer- a missionary and would have to move overseas. <laughs> Number two, that I was going to be left behind. I used to come back into the house and if there was nobody around, I'd be like, have I been left behind? <laughs> Kid you not. Pray for me. Are you still tormented by the guilt of old wrongs even though you've tried to say sorry a thousand times? Did you consider yourself bad? I, I get this. Do you struggle with shame? Does the thought of judgment day cause you fear? When things go wrong, do you think that God is punishing you? Or when they go right, do you think he's rewarding you? If any of these resonate you, with you, then maybe you can know the good news that the only time that Jesus points a rebuking finger is at the oppressive religiosity of the Pharisees. Jesus' response to sinners is never, never condemnation. It is mercy. It is love. God in Jesus has rendered a verdict through the cross. And his verdict is love. His judgment is love. Fake news. Lie number one. Can we put those in the bin? Room 101, gone. Right, lie number two, God is in control. Have I lost my mind? Surely God's in control, isn't he? How many of us this morning, in the face of hearing terrible news about your own life or that of others, have heard something to the effect of it must be part of God's plan. Or even worse, the resigned side of those going through suffering, this must be God's will for my life. What about the converse of that? God has a wonderful plan for your life. I believe God has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. And that plan looks like being in loving relationship with him in Christ through the Spirit. But I do not believe for a second that God has drafted some cosmic micromanagement plan for each of us that then unfolds in some grim deterministic way. What if the plan that God has for our lives is one of loving relationship with him where we have the freedom to co-create with him, to be in relationship with him, to act and to respond 
We're free to make mistakes. We are very often idiotic and self-centered. But this is the nature of love. Love must be free. Maybe like me, over the years, you've learned about what God is like and you've heard you know, the phrase, God is sovereign or God is in control or even God is omnipotent, that classical, that classical um, characteristic of God. But if we mean by those things that God has somehow created this blueprint for everything that is, including the minutia of our lives, the joy and the sorrow, the light and the darkness, the healing and the cancer, then I want to contend that that is a lie that we believe about God. If God is in control, then the suffering you experience must ultimately have been sanctioned by him or that he is unwilling to end it. If God is in control, then we have no reason to resist the suffering that confronts us. Very often people mean by God is in control that he is sovereign. And yes, God is sovereign. He does reign. But by that, they sometimes mean that he controls everything. How about a better question about God's sovereignty is this. How does God reign? He reigns by being who he is through relationship and through love. And in the cross of Christ, we see not only God's person, who he is, but we also see his kingdom, how he reigns. So he does not reign by sheer force or power like earthly rulers. He rules by love, by canonic love, poured out, self-giving, other-centered love. What if this idea that God is in control and that he determines everything is part of this myth of certainty that we try to construct around ourselves that in fact only feeds our own desire to control outcomes? If God is love and at its very essence that love looks like a self-giving, other-centered love, God is not controlling. He does not coerce. God is love and love does not control. Lie number two. God is in control. Room 101. You're going to think I've lost my mind in this last one. David Wiley's going to have me sectioned here. Lie number three. The cross was God's idea. I want to be careful here, obviously. In so many ways, we've been numbed to the horrors of the cross. More specifically, we've been numbed to the vicious, horrific means of torture and death that we know as the crucifixion. Here's a couple of points before we get into this one. I'm going to say God didn't originate the cross. Jesus endured the cross for us. God didn't originate the cross. Jesus endured the cross for us. 
And we might ask, why did Jesus die? He died because we killed him. Humanity killed him. Why did Jesus die? To reveal God as love. Why did Jesus die? To save us from Satan, from sin, and from death. Hopefully that's helpful. God the Father didn't design the death of Jesus, his son, on the cross. Instead, we see the eternal character of God as self-giving, other-centered love as Jesus submitted to the cross. We killed Jesus. The book of Revelation calls Jesus the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. This doesn't mean that eternity passed God decided that Jesus would die on a cross. No, it tells us that God's character has always been that of self-emptying love. Not just confined to a few hours on a wooden cross, but that his very nature, his very essence, is that of self-giving, other-centered love. Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, Professor and he writes, you can argue with him. He, in his recent book on the cross, wonders with his tongue slightly in cheek if some theologies of the cross actually say something totally contrary. Uh, something contrary to that. He wonders if John 3.16 should actually read, God so hated the world that he killed his only son, according to these theologies. The gospel of Jesus Christ is far, far more beautiful than what Tom Wright terms the paganized message of wrath appeasement through divine violence. Think about the implications if God designed that Jesus would die on a cross. We can very quickly end up with a view of God that looks more like a wrathful pagan deity demanding blood sacrifice than the beauty of the self-giving, other-centered character of God revealed in the person and especially in the cross of Jesus. So the cross was not God's idea, but the cross reveals the very nature of God. The cross was not God's idea, but the revelation of God's character is radically cruciform. So why did Jesus die? Because we killed him. But more than that, in the death, in Jesus' death, we see the face of God. The final revelation and decisive act of God as this chaotic love, this cruciform love, this victorious love. Our God is the cruciform Christ, the weakness of God who is stronger than men. Why? Because he operates by overwhelming love, not by overwhelming force. So that's lie number three. The cross was God's idea. in the bin. Can I invite the band to come up, please? Um, and can I invite you all to stand? I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish now. I realize we've gone on. I'm really sorry we've gone on this morning. Um, I'm gonna finish today by reading um, three scriptures. And this is, it's called a katana. A katana is a series of, um, a series of readings that, one builds on the other. 
And as they do that, they kind of create a picture of you know, an overall thought. There's a, a thread of thought that runs through them. So these are three, three scriptures about Jesus uh, that will help us just focus our view on this cruciform God um, in the person of Jesus and especially in his death. So why don't, why don't you just kind of change your posture, maybe close your eyes. Let me read these scriptures over you. Um, let them stir your heart. Uh, we're going to come, we're going to sing a couple of songs and then we're going to take bread and wine together. Just show us the Father then, Master, said Philip to Jesus, and that'll be good enough for us. Have I been with you for such a long time, Philip replied Jesus, and you still don't know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I am speaking to you, I'm not speaking on my own initiative. It's the Father who lives within me who is doing his own works. In many ways and by many means, God spoke in ancient times to our ancestors and the prophets. But at the end of these days, he spoke to us in a son. He appointed this son to be heir of all things. Through him, in addition, he created the worlds. He is the shining reflection of God's own glory, the precise expression of his, own, his very own being. He sustains all things through his powerful word. He accomplished the cleansing needed for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty supreme. He is the image of God, the invisible one, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things were created in the heavens and here on the earth, things we can see and things we cannot, thrones and lordships and rulers and powers. All things were created both through him and for him. And he is ahead prior to all else and in him all things hold together. And he himself is supreme, the head over the body, the church. He is the start of it all, firstborn from realms of the dead. So in all things, he might be the chief. For in him, all the fullness was glad to dwell. And through him, to reconcile all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, yes, things on earth and also the things in the heavens. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that in the person of Christ and in his cross that we see the very face of God. Thank you, Father, that through Jesus we get to know what love is. Thank you, Father, that your love is an other-centered, self-emptying, forgiving love. Thank you, Father, that your love is poured out for us Thank you, Father, that this table, this bread, and this wine is the exact representation of that love. The body that was broken, the blood that was shed for our forgiveness, for our inclusion in your family, Lord. 
Thank you for that. Lord, would you bless this bread and this wine? And as we drink and as we eat, Father, would you make Jesus uh, even an even clearer reality to each of us as we partake? Would you let the focus be sharpened on our picture of God this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.